So, Samson, lovely to have you with us this morning. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, my name is Samson Kalam. Uh, I'm uh, president, president of Kitchen Baptist Convention from Myanmar. Great, thank you. And I asked you the question this morning about the name because I know when I were in email conversations around inviting Samson to come and share with us this morning, uh, Burma was used to describe the country where you're from. And I thought it was Myanmar, but you told me this morning that you can say both, can't we? Yes. Yes, so we can say both Burma or Myanmar. I know it as Myanmar, but many of you might know it as Burma. So in Burma or Myanmar, what is your role? What do you do there? <coughs> yes, um, uh, in Myanmar, uh, Baptists are majority. Uh, across the country, we have two million Baptists in Myanmar. Okay. And then uh, the church I belong to, the Baptist, uh, Kachin Baptist Convention, have 400,000 uh, church members. I think in Myanmar, Kachin Baptist is the, the largest uh, uh, Baptist community. And I used to work as a secretary of Kachin Baptist Convention for eight years, and now I've become a president. Uh, we, uh, in Myanmar, we have uh, religious discrimination persecution since uh, 1960. So still today, you know, the church are suffering from uh, many discrimination. So now that's why, you know, we uh, come here and then uh, talk to the uh, British, the parliament member, and uh, now they know our situation. The many people in, uh, across, in the nation know, uh, they know about Rohingya, but they forget, you know, the people, the uh, Kachin state and Northern Shan state. Now they come to know about us through uh, CSW uh, work for us. Thank you. And so you've been here talking to Parliament and to other churches, I understand, about the situation. Could you explain a little bit about what that looks like on the ground, sort of what people are experiencing and and how we as a congregation might be able to help that? Yes. Uh, uh, the, in Myanmar, you know, the, uh, the Baptist mission came in 1813. Uh, Adonaram just come to Myanmar and then gave the gospel. So uh, uh, the missionary, all missionaries are ex were expelled in 1964. The regime government uh, coped the power and then all missionaries gone. And then all missionary schools were nationalized at the time. And then all hospital, uh, the uh, university, except leprosy hospital. So we have a leprosy hospital in Myanmar that owned by the Christian. So uh, since that time, you know, the churches have been uh, persecuted. And then the church, you know, the Christian movement also very limited in our country still today. Uh, we need the permission the worship permission and then uh, the activities, you know, we can't uh, do uh, what we want to do. And if we are Christian, you know, we never get higher position in our country. So that's why, you know, the Christian are uh, being oppressed by the uh, military Buddhist government. Uh, last September, uh, this year, last September, in uh, one region, you know, we call what area, uh, 52, uh, the, uh, the church, uh, the uh, 25 churches are closed and three churches are torn down and 95 ministers are detained by the WA, uh, you know, the government, WA, the arms group. 
and uh, there are still uh, there are uh, some are released now, but uh, ten about ten are still in, in the jail, and 41 seminary students are forced to go to the uh, the, um, the recruit. So uh, this kind of you know the uh, the uh, discrimination and persecution are still happening in our country. So we want you to pray for us. And then this during this week, you know, uh, our group, you know, we have six groups come here and then we also uh, push to the British government to reconsider to become a federal union in Myanmar the way they are, uh, you know, the, uh, the you know, the, the way they are uh, the doing is not work. Because now the British government work, uh, uh, you know, they cooperate a lot with the Aung San Suu Kyi and the military. So we push them, you know, reconsider and to work with the ethnic people and then uh, people, uh, the, the ethnic armed groups and ethnic people in Myanmar so, uh, so that we can be uh, uh, the genuine federal country in our, you know, in Myanmar. So we push to the parliament this, this week. Thank you. We're going to hopefully have some time a little bit later on after the service. I know you're yes. off to Brussels this evening, but yes. hopefully you'll be able to join us for a brief time after the service. If anyone has any other questions they'd like to ask Samson, but we can certainly as a church pray for you as on your continued trip and for the rest of your country as you struggle in this time. There's also some information about CSW out on the table out the front and Toby is also here. I'm sure he'll be able to answer any questions you might have as well. So thank you very much for joining us this morning, Samson. Thank you. This passage is from the book of Daniel, chapter 6, verses 7 to 23. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room, where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. 
Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him. And he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. Daniel, servant of the living God, as your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. This passage is from the letter to the Romans, chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear this word for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, 
but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you hold them. If you hold taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So um, it's lovely to be back. Uh, I didn't join the trip that, was, uh, that went to Israel, but I have been out of the UK for a couple of weeks. I was doing some inclusion training for some churches in the US, which was fantastic. But I was there for two weeks. Um, and living out of a suitcase for two weeks gets a little bit tiresome after a while. And I was saying to Elsie before the start of the service, um, when I landed uh, into Heathrow on Tuesday and this, uh, the uh, cabin crew announced, welcome back to everyone that lives here in the UK, kind of did a little mini hallelujah chorus, like, oh, it's good to be back. So it is lovely to be here with you all again this morning and to delve back into our anti-lectionary series. So if you're a visitor here or you haven't been for a few weeks, uh, we are continuing what, we're, what we've dubbed our anti-lectionary series, those passages that don't often get preached from the front uh, in the pulpit. It's been a bit of a week, hasn't it? Uh, you might be able to replace week with month, year, or decade, maybe century. In California, the death toll continues to rise and the number of missing is still increasing as the fires in both the north and the south of the state continue to be battled. And this morning in our prayer time before the start of the service, Nick with prayed for the people there. If you've seen any of the um, news or any of the media coming from that space, the images are devastating. And those devastating images are compounded by perhaps an unsurprising lack of compassion from the US president, who in his usual style tweeted this on the 10th of November. There is no reason for these massive, deadly, and costly forest fires in California, except that forest management is so poor. Billions of dollars are given each year, with so many lives lost, all because of gross mismanagement of the forests. Remedy now or no more Fed payments, federal payments. A leader of the people for the people, right? Meanwhile, the plot thickens in the complex and ever-unfolding, almost Shakespearean drama of the murder of the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. In an article for The Guardian, Martin Chulov wrote, In the extraordinary 19 days since his disappearance and death, the fate of the 59-year-old columnist and critic has steadily been pieced together. What happened inside the consulate has been traced to the doors of the Saudi royal court, sparked revulsion around the world, exposed the kingdom like no other event since the twin terror attacks of 9-11, and seen Washington and Riyadh shamelessly concoct a cover-up to protect their mutual interests and attempt to shield the powerful heir to the throne. Our leaders are there to speak truth to the people, right? 
Keeping an international focus for a moment, the plight of Yemen is now beginning to receive wider acknowledgement in the media after what for many felt like months of purposeful silence. Save the Children estimates that at least 50,000 children died in Yemen in 2017, an average of around 130 every day. And the United Nations High Commission for Human Rights estimated that the Saudi-led coalition air attacks caused almost two-thirds of reported civilian deaths. On top of this, the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs estimates that more than three million Yemenis have been displaced, with around 280,000 seeking asylum in other countries. And whilst you'd be forgiven for thinking that Britain remains complicit only by our silence, you'd be wrong. According to the summary of the High Court in June 2017, based on the accounts of an official government witness, the UK provides significant logistical and technical support to the Saudi military. In particular, the Ministry of Defence Saudi Armed Forces Projects Team, comprising over 200 UK Armed Forces and MOD personnel. It provides advice to the Saudi military on the equipment supplied by the BAM's BAE systems. Furthermore, UK liaison officers in the Saudi Arabian military HQ have a significant degree of insight into Saudi Arabia's targeting procedures and access to sensitive post-strike coalition mission reporting. The RAF Chief of Air Staff Liaison Officer in Riyadh has unparalleled access to the decision makers in the Saudi Air Force HQ. Our leaders are there to protect the weakest of peoples. Right. Many of you might be familiar with the name Julian Assange, the WikiLeaks founder who has been living as a political asylum seeker in the Ecuadorian embassy in London since 2012, as he fears extradition to the US. Assange is sought by the US government for his involvement in the publication through WikiLeaks of materials provided by Chelsea Manning, many of which cast a damning light on the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. According to the UN's Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, Assange has been subjected arbitrary detention in the Ecuadorian embassy in the UK and Swedish governments should be allowed to, sorry. According to the UN's Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, Assange has been subjected to arbitrary detention in the Ecuadorian embassy and both the UK and Swedish governments, he was under prosecution in Sweden as well, should be prosecuted and Assange should be allowed to walk free with compensation. However, Assange remains a prisoner in all but name and cannot leave the embassy for fear of repercussions that would be disproportionate to the laws that which were broken. Our leaders are there for the pursuit of justice, right? Finally, in a damning report by the United Nations Poverty Envoy, the UK government is said to have inflicted great misery on its people with punitive, mean-spirited, and often callous austerity policies driven by a political desire to undertake social re-engineering rather than economic necessity. A report in The Guardian shared earlier this week, Philip Alston, the UN's Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, ended a two-week fact-finding mission to the UK with a stinging declaration that despite being the world's fifth largest economy, levels of child poverty are not just a disgrace, but a social calamity and an economic disaster.
and the most striking comment from the report, in my opinion. Aust austerity could easily have spared the poor if the political will had existed to do so. An external body has stated that austerity need not have impacted the poor if the elite, both politically and financially, had actually wanted that to be the case. Our leaders purposefully threw our country's poorest and their children under the proverbial bus. But our leaders are there for the empowerment of the poorest and the weakest, right? What do these examples tell you? Do they speak of governments and leaders who ought to be respected and obeyed? Or is their behavior duplicitous and greedy and therefore ought to be rejected and challenged? This stalemate of conflict is the thorn in the side of every serious thinking Christian. How do we reconcile the state of current affairs with our faith in a God who was incarnate in the form of a radical Palestinian rabbi and whose ministry birthed a religious movement that was considered by the Roman authorities of the day as politically dangerous. Well, if you're Paul talking to the early church in Rome, then the simple answer is you do what you're told. And the reason that you do what you're told is because the authorities that exist have been established by God. And that's a direct quote from our passage today. That's a terrifying thought, isn't it? There may be many Christians in the world who believe that our current political leaders have been given their authority by the divine, but I am certainly not one of them. And who gets to decide which leader has been given that authority when they're on the opposite side of the political divide? Is it Trump or Putin? May or Jong-un? Merkel or Xi? Macron or Rouhani? Surely their divine authority is purely subjective based on your own political belief. It is exactly this kind of rhetoric that paved the way for the divine right of kings, an alarming doctrine that reached its heyday in Britain during the reign of King James I in the early 1600s, but had been used to control and subdue populations of the peasantry and nobility alike for generations before. Some interpretations of scripture in the 17th century even claimed that the king was the descendant of Adam, who, according to this frankly bizarre theological theory, was the first king, which, ironically, there is little mention of Christ ever made in these doctrines. Earlier examples in scripture also have something to say about this, in what appears to me to be a contradiction to the words of Paul in his letter to the Romans. Our reading from the Hebrew scriptures today reminded us of the familiar events of Daniel in the lion's den, a story we often share with children as an example of how following God's commands will always lead to good in the end. In this narrative, Daniel and his companions refuse to subject themselves to the law of the land because these laws seek to place other gods, with a lowercase g, above the God, capital G, of the Hebrews. They continue to worship Yahweh and face the consequences at the hands of the duplicitous advisors to the king by being thrown into the den of the lions. The next morning, their God is glorified, for none of them were harmed, and King Darius's eyes were opened to the truth that Daniel had known all along. Splendidly, this account goes completely against the words of Paul, and whilst contextually they are very different, they are about the same thing. 
the question of who do we give our allegiance to and respect the authority of. For the early Christians in Rome, their questions were around taxation and the face of the colloquially understood divine emperor on the coinage. For Daniel and his contemporaries, this was about worship, but both are about authority and control. It seems that this is not just in the 21st century Western society where worship and money are unbreakably bound. Frustratingly, all of the commentaries, articles, and blogs on our passage from Romans that I read in preparation for this sermon all bang on about the same thing, context, as if this is something new and revelatory that we should only consider for this passage alone. Of course, context is key when handling scripture, but to disarm great chunks of the Bible because we're not sure they're contextually relevant to us anymore is to do this great work a disservice. It does not seem unreasonable to me to suggest that Paul was making a plea to a community of early believers who were likely to be in danger much, if not all, of the time. This particular church was established in the heart of an empire who deified their emperor and who classified any form of resurrection as not only treason, but heresy too. The Jewish communities living in occupied territories were strictly controlled and regulated by insidious partnerships between members of their own religious authorities and the Roman leadership. And any movement beyond these tightly controlled parameters were met with severe punishment. The death of Jesus Christ, a prolific Jew with an anti-establishment reputation, particularly in the years after his death, with the coining of phrases such as Jesus is Lord, a provocative stab at the Roman establishment and the emperor, was not a coincidence, but rather a regime dealing with a potential threat to civility and order. And so Paul's context was one in which his people were considered to be political and religious extremists. As such, it would have been dangerous and fairly destructive for the early church for him to encourage them to go about defying taxes or engaging in political disagreement. Not only contextually do we find ourselves different from Paul here in the West where Christians are afforded liberties and social status by default, but I also find myself disagreeing with his stance on taxation. It's not unusual for me to disagree with Paul. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. Do we really owe the authorities our taxes? Or is it one another that we owe this to? I pay my taxes not because it's the law, but because I owe it to the well-being of society to contribute in a financially responsible way. Do we not do the same thing in church by giving money to our community to ensure our ability to keep going as a church that reaches people beyond our walls? I may be legally bound to pay my taxes, but I do so willingly and not because I owe the government. But what do governments do with our taxes? I believe this is a statistic that I've shared before, but it is worth sharing again. This is coming from data from the CIA World Factbook, 
and it says the Pentagon uses more petroleum per day than the aggregate consumption of 175 countries out of 210 in the world and generates more than 70% of this nation's total greenhouse gas emissions. Not only that, but according to the publication Scientific American, the US Air Force burns through 2.5 billion gallons of jet fuel a year, all of it derived from oil. Since the start of the post 9-11 wars, US military fuel consumption has averaged about 144 million barrels annually. That figure doesn't include fuel used by coalition forces, military contractors, or the massive amount of fossil fuels burned in weapons manufacturing. The so-called defense budget in the United States was $610 billion, accounting for over 50% of federal discretionary spending. Earlier this year, the budget for two, uh, 2019 was passed at $716 billion. To give some perspective here, some statisticians suggest that rough sleeping homelessness could cease to exist in the US with some $20 billion worth of spending. A little closer to home, and certainly another figure I've banged on a lot about, is the replacement of the hotly contested Trident nuclear deterrent. Most sources agree that the total cost of the program's 30-year lifespan is somewhere in the region of 160 to 200 billion British pounds, which equates to around five to six billion pounds annually. To do a similar comparison as I just did with the US, according to crisis here in the UK, some 20 million pounds would be needed to end rough sleeping homelessness for good between 2018 and 2041. So that's 20 million across that period. This is what we are duly giving our taxes to. Do we owe our authorities this money for these purposes? I believe you can tell a lot about a people by how they allow their money to be spent. Of course, our taxes are also spent on our critically under-budgeted and woefully under-resourced and ill-prepared National Health Service, our crumbling infrastructure and struggling road networks, and our care for the elderly and those with disabilities. Perhaps I'm too much of an idealist for politics, but I can't help but think our money could be better spent elsewhere. So no, Paul, I don't owe my authorities anything in fact, our authorities should be elected for the people and by the people. Isn't that why the United States went off and did it alone in the first place? I owe my neighbours my taxes, not my government. In fact, their obligation is to us. In his defence, Paul was writing at a time when they didn't exactly get to pop down to the ballot box and vote to change things. Political protest, peaceful or otherwise, would have been met with deliberate and decisive force. Here in the UK, we do not find ourselves in such a context. We have a voice, and in respect to the rightful authority and that which was created by and through that authority, we must use it. We are a union divided, not only in four by our constituent nations, but along financial, ethnic, religious, and political belief. Our differences are often used to play us against one another, a race to survive as the fittest and strongest, to get to the top of the pyramid, for fear that someone will get there first and take everything away from us. This is the rhetoric around immigration, refugees, 
Islam, sexuality, gender identity, and yes, Brexit. The rhetoric of us against them at any cost. And so whilst I respect Paul for doing all he could to ensure that the church survived in the first century AD, I think our challenge is very different today. It is a challenge to ensure that the message of Christ is not one that dictates only survival, but one that ensures that we all thrive. The path before us is to use our voice, our vote, our passion, our faith to demand more, to challenge the broken system, to be Christ in the margins. There are many ways that we as a church here at Bloomsbury attempt to do this, whether it's through our work with the Winter Night Shelter and C4WS, our partnership with Citizens UK, or our regular giving to organizations such as BMS. As Christians in the West, we find ourselves in a position of privilege and power, particularly if our skin is white and if we are financially comfortable. And we must use this, else we are failing the other. We heard earlier of our siblings in Myanmar and the difficulties faced by the people there, as well as specifically the experience of Christian communities. It is the plight of these communities that our voices should be elevating. Their experiences we should be educating ourselves and others on, and their experiences that we should be learning from. Our place is not to incite violence, not to champion rage, nor seek out destruction, but choose the paths of peace that are before us, but are hidden between the layers of political power play, economic manipulation, and social hierarchies maintained for the purposes of control. Our place is to speak loudly, act decisively, and to live faithfully. Today, as citizens not only of our nations, but of the kingdom of God, might we need to be a little more Daniel and a little less Paul. We're now going to come before the Lord in prayer. You call us, Lord, to pray for leaders who are trying to dismantle the NHS, for powers that dismantle things that serve others. You call us, Lord, to challenge those services, to challenge those that do not care for the sick, for the poor, for the orphan or the widow. You call us, Lord, to speak out against those who would perpetrate social cleansing through a lack of will. But Lord, you hold us. You hold those that are sick, those that are poor, the orphan and the widow. And this morning we lift up Ruth Johnson to you and think of her. You call us, Lord, to pray for governments that do ethnic cleansing, to challenge those who commit atrocities, to not become complicit in letting it happen. You call us to stand up and to speak out 
And you hold us, Lord. Keep us safe. And we thank you for the safe return of those that have been traveling in Israel and Palestine. You call us, Lord, to speak out and challenge those leaders that respond inadequately to disaster. To demand reaction, to demand compassion of those that are inactive or dismissive. You call us, Lord, to speak out for those that are suffering. Those that are being burnt. Those that are lost. Those that are dying. But Lord, you hold us. And even still, you offer us comfort. And we pray for comfort for those in California. Those that are suffering. You call us, Lord, to speak out against the leaders that persecute and prejudice and abuse any people group. Those that separate because of religion and because of belief. And those that are complicit in allowing it to happen. You call us, Lord, to fight against these prejudices and to look inside ourselves so that we do not hold those prejudices ourselves. And you hold us, Lord. And we hold up Myanmar and Samson and Toby and all those that are experiencing religious persecution. You call us, Lord, to speak out against those who wish to have silence. To speak out where others would wish to hush up. To speak out even when it may lead to our death, our violence against ourselves. You call us, Lord, to speak out. And you hold us. And Lord, we hold in our hearts the, the family of, those Saudi, of the Saudi reporter and all those who live in fear. You call us, Lord, to call for peace. to protest those that are continuing to arm warmongering powers that fund death and violence. You call us, Lord, to show a different way of being, to show a way of peace, a way of love, a way of non-violence. And you hold us, Lord, 
and you give hope. Show us how to give hope to all those Yemen and other refugees and asylum seekers. You call us, Lord, to learn, to learn from the past. Let us call our powers to account those that will not learn from the past, those who continue to manipulate justice for their own ends. Those who would continue to do human rights violations, those who will not set prisoners free. Hold us, Lord. Give us courage. Give us a voice. Do not let us become complicit. Let us follow in your footsteps. Amen.